You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Today is the 504th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the front door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, most people consider this kind of the beginning of the Reformation period. Erwin Lutzer in his book, Rescuing the Gospel, reminds us that every generation, including ours, has to fight for the purity of the gospel uh, and to make sure that the gospel remains central because it is our nature to reject the gospel. Uh, what the gospel at least says about us, namely that we are sinners uh, facing a certain judgment at the hands of a holy God. It is our nature to resist the simplicity of the gospel, that we are saved not by our works, uh, but by the grace of God alone through faith alone. And so the gospel must always be defended And sometimes, as Lutzer notes in his book, it must be rescued. So that was certainly the case at the end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, when Martin Luther lived. Luther was a monk and a priest, a theologian in the Catholic Church. And when he um, walked that half mile from his uh, home in Wittenberg to the castle church some 504 years ago, he was angry. (laughs) He He was about to nail a list of challenges against certain Catholic teachings uh, to the church door, which kind of served as a bulletin board in in the town. And uh, he intended to spark a debate over the abuses that he believed existed in the church of his day. Of the 95 theses, uh, the main points, I think, were, were fairly simple. You can't buy God's grace and you can't override the authority of God's Word. We have to stand on both of those things. And so we're thankful for guys like Luther and, and uh, John Huss and Calvin and Zwingli and uh, all of the other reformers. Imperfect men for sure. Uh, but uh, we praise God for what these men stood up for and recovered. And these are the truths uh, they called the, the church to return to, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the same truths that we are standing on today and defend and guard and proclaim uh, these precious truths of the gospel. And we do that uh, even today as we look in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not, do, why not just do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father, we ask for your help now as we look at this difficult passage of Scripture. Lord, please, by your Spirit, illumine our minds uh, to understand. And Lord, by your Spirit, convict our hearts and our lives of what you are asking of us, Lord. And I pray that uh, you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come now to the third chapter of Romans. And I just remind you, in the way of context, this section began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he continues there, uh, this gospel, he says, <clears throat> reveals that the righteousness of God comes by faith. Chapter 1, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes on to show us why this is such good news. It is good news because of chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we notice the word all there. The wrath of God is being revealed against all men. Not just the Gentiles, but, but also the Jews. This is an argument then Paul sets out to make. He's been laboring to make in chapter 2. The that the Jew is as much under the wrath of God as the Gentile. And the futility of trying to rely on one's Jewishness, or if we would apply this to today, one's uh, good works, religious works, to escape God's wrath. Just because you're a Jew, Paul says, it will not spare you from the judgment of God. Possessing the law is not the same thing as possessing grace that saves. And so you can have all the religious privileges in the world and be lost. Now, just so that we don't forget how applicable this is today, let me remind you that the Jewish tendency here to think that these religious privileges made them safe from the judgment of God has its parallels to the church today. Uh, I believe that a genuine Christian is safe from the judgment of God. Amen? Right? But, but a belief in, in what we sometimes call eternal security can be abused to create a, a sense of false safety today. Many of us uh, learned growing up uh, the phrase, once saved, always saved. Some of you have paid attention there. But beloved, that is only true if you are genuinely saved. And so some people think that because they've walked an aisle and raised a hand during the invitation at some point in their life and been baptized, that they are saved, even though they, would, they may have never submitted their lives to Christ. They've never really an ongoing repentance and, and uh, obedience to Christ. In fact, there's little evidence of any spiritual life in them. And I, and I tell you, there's no such thing as that kind of Christianity in the Bible, there's certainly no security from God's judgment 
on someone who thinks and lives this way. And we can imagine objections, and people do. They lean on these objections. Well, uh, I saw so-and-so cry when they came forward. I know it was real because they cried. You know, even though they haven't been in church in years and years, and they live like an unbeliever right now, uh, once saved, always saved, right? The Jews were making similar arguments, and Paul warns them here. We don't trust in these things, or even our own emotions. Our trust must be in Christ alone. And such faith will manifest itself. It will bring about change because we've been made a new creation. It it will result in new hearts that desire and strive to obey Christ. So remember, chapter 2, verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and a circumcision is matter of the heart by the Spirit. Such a change leads to an obedient life of following Christ. So at one level, Paul's argument here, Paul's aim is simple. He's he's trying to, in these chapters, and I know they're they're laborsome, they're, they're hard, but he's trying to close every loophole of man, every escape contingency that we might think of. That we might be able to throw up and say, throw back to God and say, well, you know, I've got this. I'm depending on this. Or what about this? Uh, even the, to escape both the, the moral person, the objections, the religious person, they, they might try to evade the fact that they can only be right with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this results in a transformation. Christopher Ash writes this this is so offensive to human pride. That in every church, evasions of grace spring up like weeds in a springtime garden. Paul understands the deceitful attractiveness of a complacent, false assurance and wants to expose it for the dangerous sham that it is. We, We must resist this. We must accept the fact that we are facing the judgment of God, and it is right because we are unrighteous before Him. Ash continues with these provocative, I think, but true words. Nothing I can do can stop God from being angry with me. And quite rightly so, he writes, it doesn't matter how good a life I manage to lead, how well I know my Bible, how zealous I am about the church, how wonderful a Christian family or friends I may have. The right thing for God to do is to be very angry with me. It would be quite wrong of God not to be angry with me. That sounds outrageous, but but it's it's true. And until we grasp this, church, the deep sense of our own need, our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, can we ever fully appreciate the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us? So in chapter 3 here, we're not surprised that there are some objections being made to what Paul is saying. And it's not crystal clear who this objector is. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Uh, We don't know exactly who this man is who is raising these objections. It could be a literal person there in the congregation of Rome who's making these objections. Uh, These questions could have been raised through Paul's ministry. He's preaching in and out of synagogues all the time, so he's probably hearing these objections, and maybe he's just summarizing for us. I think there's a case to be made that it's Paul himself. That, that it's, the, it's Saul, the unconverted Pharisee, who is raising these objections that he held on to himself for many years. 
And so there's this back and forth dialogue here in chapter 3, much like the volley of a tennis match. And, and these are very technical, very specific kinds of objections that are raised. In fact, many call this the most difficult passage in Romans to interpret and understand, um, which makes quite a challenge uh, today. Uh, my brother Jim Castlin uh, uh, says we need to make sure that the cookies are on the bottom shelf so that everybody can enjoy them. That's not an insult to anybody, but uh, just trying to make sure these things are as easy to understand as we possibly can. That's what I tried to do this morning. There are basically four objections uh, to Paul's teaching. Uh, first, objection number one, the gospel undermines God's covenant. Verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew, the objector says, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So there's no doubt we know that God chose Israel out of all of the nations to be his people, right? That's the story of the Old Testament, much of it. God gave them the sign of the covenant, the circumcision. He gave them the law through Moses. We've been talking about these things. These are religious, precious religious privileges that God has given to the Jews. And yet Paul says that, uh, that these things cannot save them. They cannot save them in and of themselves. And so the objector raises his hand and says, well, okay, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? Well, what, why have circumcision at all? If what you're saying is true, if it has no saving advantage. Uh, Steve Lawson, I think, applies this well for us. He said we could ask ourselves the same question in this way. What advantage was it to grow up in a Christian family? If this doesn't guarantee your salvation, what is the profit of that? What advantage is it that you went to a Christian school? If that doesn't put you in the kingdom of God. What advantage is there if you go to a good church, if you go to a Bible-believing church, and if you can be in church where the Word of God is preached and you're still not saved, what is the advantage? Notice how Paul responds. He says, much in every way. To begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, literally the oracles, the divine revelation of God, the Word of God, the, the Old Testament in this particular context. Uh, and specifically, more specifically than that, perhaps, is, is the promises of God that he had given to them. The promise of salvation and, Abra and the covenant that he made with Abraham, that, that through Abraham's seed the world would be blessed and that God would save Israel. And through them they would be a blessing to the whole earth. This knowledge, he, Paul writes, was an enormous advantage to the Jew because, first of all, no one can be saved without a knowledge of the truth. So therefore, possessing it, having that knowledge, puts you ahead of a lot of other people who don't have that knowledge. It's wonderful to have the Bible. In other words, that's what he's saying. It's wonderful to have these promises, covenant promises of God, the commandments of God, the law of God, the truth of God. So to be a Jewish believer is better than to be a Gentile believer because you've got a head start in all of these things. You know your Bible. You have all the... The, the pieces of the puzzle, just as Paul had before his conversion, and yet all of those pieces needed to fall into place with Jesus Christ as the center. Notice the word entrusted. These things have been entrusted to you. That implies a stewardship, doesn't it? 
Mere knowing the gospel in the head doesn't save a person. You still have to believe. You have to respond. You have to have your heart circumcised by God as you submit to his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord of your life. And so this is you. If you've been raised in a church or a Christian home, you should rejoice in these things, brothers and sisters. You should give thanks to God for these things. And parents, you should strive for these things in your own home. You should strive that the Bible, that the gospel would be centered in your own families, in your own home. But no, these things in themselves don't save. The biggest question is, have you responded to that word of God? You've had these privileges. Have you responded? Are you living these privileges out? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Has your heart been cut by sin? Do you still feel the effects of of it on your life even now, right now, years later after that? You're still throwing yourselves on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, striving to follow Him. Is it true? Are these things true in your life now? So that's the first objection. Notice the second one. The second one is the gospel nullifies God's faithfulness. Verse 3, the objector says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, what's this question about? Well, let's let's look at some things here in, in, in the scope of this. Notice the comparison between Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. You can just scan the text. Look at your text In verse 3, look at the word faithless. This is describing Israel's unfaithfulness. Faithless. Verse 4, liar. Verse 5, unrighteous. Verse 7, my lie. But then notice at the same time God's faithfulness. Verse 3, the faithfulness of God. Verse 4, God is true. Verse 5, the righteousness of God. Verse 7, God's truth. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? The, the Jews were unfaithful to keep the law of God, and they were unfaithful in their failure to believe in Christ. And so the question is, will, will their unfaithfulness somehow nullify God's faithfulness? Well, God's faithfulness to keep his promises. And we might think of it this way. Can God keep his covenant promises and pour out judgment on his people at the same time? You see how they're wrestling with this and the objection that they're made? We know God's promises are certain. Amen? He will do. He he must do what he says that he will do. That's our, our God. But on the other hand, his covenant promise to Abraham was conditional. Not just certain, but conditional. Because it was conditional on Abraham's family, the Jews, keeping their side of the covenant. So how can God's promise be both certain and conditional? What if his people don't keep their side? By the way, that's the point Paul's been laboring to make, right? That they haven't kept their side. That none of us have. And so the Jew is asking, well, what about the promise of God? Has it been nullified? Paul answers in verse 5. By no means. In other words, not on your life. Not in a thousand years. Let God be True, though everyone were a liar. He then adds a supporting verse there from, in verse 4 from Psalm 51. 
as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. Here's what it says in the context. It says, against you and you only have I sinned, David said, and done what is evil in your sight, talking to God, so that you may, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, why is Paul bringing this up? Because here's David, he's admitting his guilt before God, and at the same time, he's admitting that it is right for God to bring judgment on his life. David admits then that God is faithful not just when he blesses his people when they are faithful, but also God is faithful in judging his people when they are not. God is faithful in his promises to save as well as his promises to judge. God is faithful either way. And so his faithfulness is not nullified. This is another warning here that no Jew should presume upon the promises of God and think that he or she is saved from our guaranteed salvation. And, and I would tell you in way of application that the complacent nominal Christian would do well to remember this, is, this too. Faith is not simply believing something to be true. When we're talking about biblical faith... Biblical faith means loyalty. It means love and obedience. This is what is pictured here for us. Do not presume upon God with some cheap version of faith that is without repentance and obedience and think that you're safe. God will not be mocked, nor will he be fooled by a faith that is empty and dead. Uh, third and, and fourth, honestly, objections are very similar. Objection number three, the gospel maligns God's justice, His justice, verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, Paul says. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? Again, this is very technical, but if, if we try to make it as plain as possible, the objector, the one who's raising the objection here is arguing in, in some way that, you know, the more sinful we are, then the brighter God's righteousness shines. They're, they're saying to Paul, well, you're preaching grace, Paul, and if this is true, then you know our sins actually show the righteousness of God. If I'm, just, if I'm unjust and I fail to keep the covenant, and God is just and true to the covenant when he punishes me, then you might say that my badness has brought out God's goodness more clearly into, into the open, and since God is being glorified in all of this, that it means it's really unfair for him to be punishing me. That's what they're saying. It's like a football player. It seems like we watch this all the time. He commits a, this penalty and the whole world sees it on video and the ref throws a flag and then he's like, who me? I didn't do anything wrong. Paul's saying, yeah, you. I'm talking about you. You did this. Your argument is absurd. And in fact, it's so ridiculous, Paul has to add in parentheses, I speak in a human way. In other words, this is hogwash. This is like not even 
human reasoning that is good. He'll address something similar in chapter 6, by the way, when he asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, should we keep on sinning because this makes God's righteousness shine all of the more? And the thought is that he's not going to judge us again because we're his covenant people. We can live how we want to live. And you remember the glorious words, uh, or, or excuse me, verse 6, by no means, he says. For then, how could God judge the world? If, if the Jews are right on this argument, Paul says, then there would be no judgment at all. Which would have been unthinkable to the Jew, because then the covenant would have mattered at all. All of that in the Old Testament would have been for not all those promises. But he says, just as God is going to judge the immoral Gentile, chapter 1, verse 18 and following, we talked about, he's also going to judge the moral Jew who has not turned to Christ for a new heart. And he will judge all of those who have disobeyed his law and not turned to Christ. And God is, make no mistake, both just and right to judge them both. Objection four is similar. The gospel falsely promotes God's glory. Verse seven. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is a very similar argument. Paul is continuing to develop at this point. This time he impersonates the objector. He puts himself in that place, which is why part of me thinks that Paul's kind of thinking about his old self here, wrestling back and forth. He says, if my falsehood, if my lie, if my disobedience makes God's glory shine brighter, then why am I still being condemned by God? Am I not doing him a service? By my sin? That's what some people were saying about Paul's teaching. Why not do evil that good may come? They're accusing Paul here of being antinomian or anti-law. Just do whatever you want to do. Because it's only going to make God's glory shine brighter and brighter. Charles Hodge puts it well. According to this reason, says Paul, the worse we are, the better. For the more wicked we are, the more conspicuous will be the mercy of God in our pardon. This objection, of course, came because Paul was teaching that salvation was by the grace of God. In chapter 5, uh, he will write this glorious verse, I, it's glorious to me anyway, when he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But the critics were saying, ah, if that's true, Paul, then you ought to sin more. So more grace will come. But Paul never taught that. He never taught that. This time, Paul doesn't even really answer the objections except to say basically that anybody who thinks this way has condemned himself already. He says their, their condemnation is just. I'm not even going to address this. If you think this way, you're already condemned. You're not saved. So these are powerful warnings here for the Jews, but again, for, I would argue, for, for nominal Christians who, who, like the Jews in Paul's day, think that somehow the certainty of the promise is going to trump its conditionality. That we don't have to respond in repentance and faith. And obedience and loyalty and faithfulness. That it really doesn't matter how we live. So as long as we believe, 
We believe something and then live any way that we want to live. doesn't matter whether we obey God or not. Why? Why is that? Well, because I went forward in vacation Bible school 35 years ago. I, 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 I prayed the magic prayer. And you know, we're good because once saved, always saved. Saved from the judgment of God. And yet, they've never genuinely been saved. It reminds us of those in the, the days of the prophet Jeremiah when he preached his uh, famous temple sermon, as it's sometimes called, Jeremiah chapter 7. In essence, the people that he was preaching through thought that they were safe because they were inside of the temple. And as long as they were inside of the building, they were safe. That is until God speaks to them. Here's a summary of that message. Jeremiah 7, 4. God says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You're trusting and the wrong thing. And then he says, you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, we are saved, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Verse 13, and now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you, persistently you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Verse 15, I will cast you out of my sight. Those are sobering words. It is a very dangerous and bad miscalculation to presume upon God. But here's the good news today. You are hearing this word. And brothers and sisters, these are words of life. The world would say, this is so harsh. This is so terrible. This picture of this angry God. No, these are words of life. Because unless you understand this, you cannot understand the good news of the gospel. You cannot understand how precious these words are, this word of life and hope and truth that is being spoken to you today because you've been made aware of these things and you can turn from your sin and turn from your religious works that you're putting your trust in to save you. You can turn from yourself and your self-righteousness and you can surrender in faith to the only righteousness that can save you, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the question today is, will you? And will you continue to trust in Christ? Father, we thank you for these very difficult words, Lord, but Lord, words of life. Give us ears to hear them, Lord, that we would not presume in any way 
with our excuses and reasoning and rationales as to why we are safe. The only way a person is safe from your judgment is to be in Christ and Christ in them. Lord, make that clear today. And we pray for those who may be listening today who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Today would be the day of salvation for them. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.